Anything, our Marion Libraries podcast where we talk about anything literary and literary anything. I'm Paula. I'm Andrea. <laughs> welcome. Welcome back, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun last time. <laughs> it was fun, wasn't yeah, it? it was and really we, good. We got heaps of really positive feedback from people. Yeah, I think we sort of maybe hit a bit of a nerve. I think it's that thing when you sort of pop your hand up and say, I'm finding this really hard you often find that you're not alone, that there are lots of other people going, yeah, me too. (laughs) That's right. And actually, one of our staff members came to me afterwards and said that using your technique, I guess, your little tip of setting yourself a goal of maybe reading 10 pages, she said that she actually ended up finishing a book that she had been kind of like limping through for ah, 18 months. 18 months? 18 oh, fantastic. Months. Yeah, <laughs> it was Becoming by Michelle Obama, which of course is a fantastic yes, book. Yeah. We, we read it on the podcast and yeah, anyway. Oh, I'm so pleased. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And I found it really helped me as well with this book. I used a combination of your tip of just setting a goal for yourself of reading mm. a bit and also, I got the audiobook as well. So I kind of nice. went back and forth with yeah. the book and the audiobook. Yeah, I don't know where I picked up the read 10 pages tip, but it really helps me as well. I've been yeah. doing that a lot with my own reading still. I'm still kind of coming out of a book slump. So yeah. I've been doing that as well. Like 10 pages on the train right. is manageable. Thinking about reading an entire book still feels a bit tricky. Yeah. 10 pages is doable. Well, it's funny. I'll talk about this more when we get to other books that we've read, but I'm coming out of the slump as well. And when you talked about how when you're in one of those places you like to just read really procedural crime yes. fiction, I thought, <laughs> what's my book that's like that? And I've discovered what it is, so I'll tell you about that oh, when we cool. talk yeah, about other books. Yeah, i to hear it. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> but for this month, we finally read Here Goes Nothing by Steve Toltz. We did indeed. Now, do you want to tell us a little bit about Steve? Yeah, sure. So Steve Toltz was born in Sydney in 1972. His first novel, A Fraction of the Whole, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and I also loved it. Oh, Um, I was going to ask if you read it. I did. I really loved it. I think it was fantastic. I remember reading it really quickly. It was one of those ones, the voice felt so distinctive that I just read it really quickly and told everyone about it Mm. and really, really enjoyed it. So his second novel I didn't read though. It was called Quicksand Mm. and it won the 2017 Russell Prize for Humour Writing. So I think right. that's a fairly prestigious one. So is A Fraction of the Whole also humorous? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so all mm. three of his novels to okay. date have all been humorous. And for anyone who's read any of them, humour across all three books is quite similar. So uh, interesting. <laughs> I think if you if you find one of them funny, you're quite likely to find the other funny. He's lived in Montreal, Vancouver, mm. New York, Barcelona and Paris. He's worked like an astonishing array of jobs. He's been a cameraman, a telemarketer, a security guard, a private investigator and an English teacher. Wow. And I know, he feels like a character in one of his own he books. <laughs> That's where he gets it from. Like. But he's currently living in Los Angeles where he moonlights as a screenwriter uh. in addition to his novel writing. Yeah, this book very much seems like it could be a movie. Like, can yeah. you picture it? Yeah, especially mm. the dialogue. I read mm. that one of the things he does as a screenwriter is he comes in to make the dialogue seem punchier in, in the novels. And I think <sighs> after reading this book in particular, I can definitely see that he'd have quite a knack for that. Yeah, so he has a gift. One of his specialties. Yeah. yeah, for realistic dialogue. Realistic. Yeah, yeah, and really zingy. Mm, um, zingy, yeah. Yeah, they're really zingy dialogue. So <laughs> I think I can see he'd be really good at that. Right. So Angus Mooney is in a dark place, the afterlife. His days are spent in aching embarrassment. God, religion, the supernatural. He was wrong about everything. He longs for his audacious, fiery wife, Gracie, but can only watch from the side as she is seduced by his killer, who has stepped seamlessly into Mooney. 
Mooney's shoes. Meanwhile, life after death isn't all it's cracked up to be. Another pandemic is sweeping the globe. Mooney's new home is filling up fast. Resources are scarce, infrastructure is crumbling, and he has to share an increasingly cramped existence with a group of people still traumatized by their own deaths. And although he should know better, he remains in the grip of the same fear as when he was alive, the opinions of others. Bum, bum. <laughs> Yeah, I read somewhere it's a vision of the afterlife that rivals Dante's Divine Comedy and George Saunders' Lincoln and the Bardo and the Emmy-nominated The Good Place. Yes, all things I've never seen or read. So. Right. Well, I've never, I've never read the Dante's Divine Comedy. I tried to listen to Lincoln and the Bardo because the audiobook won awards and it's got heaps of actors like... I can't remember his name. It's the guy from Parks and Rec who's married to Megan Mullally. Oh, Nick Offerman. Nick Offerman, yeah. Oh, I really Nick love Offerman Nick Offerman. And, yeah, yeah, he's so got such I. an amazing voice. I know. <laughs> so that's why I thought, oh, I should try and listen to it. But it's very strange and I couldn't keep going with it. But I love The Good Place. The Good Place oh, is cool. lots of fun. Excellent. Yeah, I tried reading George Saunders, I think it's called The Tenth of December or something. And, and like you, I'd read all these rave reviews about mm. his work, but just couldn't get into it. Now... I kind of don't know where to start with this yes, book. I've been thinking, I've been sitting at my desk knowing that we were about to come and do this and going, I guess the main question, did you enjoy it? What was your experience of reading this? What did you, what did you make of it? Yeah, I was really up and down mm-hmm. with this book. There were parts of it where I felt like it dragged. Angus's experience of the afterlife, I found, I guess because it was so similar to life on earth Mm. (laughs) that I found it really depressing I mean I guess it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be depressing yes I think so um but I found that part dragged a little and also because of the way the blurb describes uh, Angus watching Owen with his wife I kept Mm. waiting for that to happen but it's actually about like 70 percent of the way through before that actually happens yes I had a really similar experience of reading this book so for the first kind of 50 to 100 pages. I really enjoyed this. I thought it was really funny. The dialogue is great. It's sort of, even though he's travelled all around the world and lived in so many places, there's something about the way he writes dialogue that feels really Australian. There's Mm. something about the way people talk, the way they use slang, the way they swear, the way (laughs) they speak in really short sentences. That felt really Australian. It felt like being younger and listening to my parents talk with their friends at night time or something like that, like overhearing something like that. It felt really Australian and I can see why that's one of his jobs as a screenwriter. Mm. And it starts off kind of zany. It's Angus Mooney is a never-do-well who's maybe slightly in denial about his own potential for dastardly deeds. Mm. He describes, you know, a light bit of home invasion, bit of drug (laughs) dealing, you know, nothing too serious. But at the age of 40, after he sort of skims over it, he's been an orphan, he's grown up in foster care, he's been a petty criminal. It seems like he spent about a decade as a heroin addict Mm. as well. And finally, somewhere in his late 30s or early 40s, he meets this woman Gracie and he falls in love with her so a lot of that first half is this quite kind of charming story about two very unusual people falling in love and it's not overly sentimental they're unique characters and I found that this is pleasant after years of trying and using IVF they finally fall pregnant and then into this fairly nice domestic arrangement comes a really unusual character called Owen Fogarty who rocks up on their doorstep one day 
tells them, I grew up in this house, this is my childhood home, and I'm dying, and my dying wish is to die in this house. And it's really unclear why, considering he has no positive memories of this house whatsoever, <laughs> like none at all. But they only let him stay, mainly because they're really broke, they have a baby coming, and they know he's a doctor. So the arrangement is, if he can stay in the house, he will leave his estate to them. So that's the deal they make. And it goes horribly, horribly wrong <laughs> for Angus from there. But I Mm. thought this first half of the novel was really enjoyable. Their characters are really frothy. There's not much to them, but the relationships between them are amusing. So Owen and Angus hate each other instantly. Mm. It's really clear to Angus that Owen is eyeing off Gracie. Owen is nothing but obnoxious to Angus. So (laughs) there's a lot of just kind of fun tension and humour in that first half. So I enjoyed that. Yeah. Let's talk about the characters because Gracie, I found was definitely the standout character for me in this book. I I really loved her and I thought I'd read a bit just from the beginning because I feel like this really sets up who Gracie is. So one of the things that Gracie does or the thing that she does at the beginning of the novel is perform wedding ceremonies. She's got a very unique way of performing these ceremonies and I think word of mouth gets round about her and her unique ability to narrate the beginning of these people's lives together. So here is an example of how she does that. So she's at this wedding and she says, you weighed the pros and cons and concluded you probably deserve each other, yeah? Whatever intersections of self-interest have brought you here, you two free individuals have made some sober calculations and decided to marry. Nice one. Now you're freshly configured and you each have someone to help you out of vicious loops. It's virtually guaranteed that you'll not go days without hearing human voices. And most importantly, you've just improved your health. The chronically single have depressed immune systems. And by this union, you will have higher white blood cell counts with which to fight foreign intruders. Let's take a moment to acknowledge that your life expectancy went up today, okay? Statistically, by four years. That's not nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So I fell in love with Gracie, but I found her frustrating as well. I found her really frustrating. I did not fall in love with Gracie. Oh, did you not? (laughs) I did not. I loved her. I loved her because she starts doing baby ceremonies as well. Yeah. And I don't know. I just loved her quirky take. I think for me, the problem I have with Gracie is a bit emblematic of the problem I had with this book eventually Mm. in that every single character in this book is Steve Toltz. Every single character in this book talks like Steve Toltz. They have the same sense of humour as Steve Toltz. (laughs) They have the same interests as Steve Toltz. They're just Steve Toltz in drag, every single one of them. (laughs) And so Gracie to me felt like a really inconsistent character. I think Mm. sometimes Steve Toltz uses her as a way of mocking social media Mm. so Gracie has a really big social media following and he's kind of implying that she's constantly posting these really banal kind of new agey self-helpy attention-seeking posts and it often feels like he's mocking Gracie but then on the other hand Gracie becomes a mouthpiece for Steve Toltz to talk about marriage and relationships which I think is a big part of what this book is also about Mm. And here she becomes quite straight. I think she's just telling you what Steve Toltz kind of thinks about marriage, which is that they're imperfect and all of our romantic ideas about them are wrong, but there's something about committing to another person that can make life meaningful. Mm. But you have to strip all your romantic illusions about it. And in those sections she feels like a kind of real person, I think because in those moments she's 
She's stick tops. But then she flips again. So then there are times when I guess I just sort of felt like there's something about Gracie that becomes a kind of manic pixie dream girl for Steve Toltz. Like mm. there are other times when she just seems inexplicable. So after Angus's death, it seems like Steve Toltz wants to kind of mock some of her new agey beliefs a little bit. So she's grief stricken. But then she kind of figures out that like karma wise, Angus who was a very, very bad man in life, <laughs> probably had it coming. So she kind of makes peace with his death in that way. But then a couple of chapters later, she pops up and she's actually grief-stricken again. Mm. And she's travelling all around Sydney, trying to go to places where he might have been to try and connect with his spirit or something. And then she pops up again a few chapters later and she's sleeping with Owen. So <laughs> I found just, that annoying me. Yeah, and we know that the character of Owen is meant to be quite sleazy so mm-hmm. one of the main reasons he's in this house is because he wants to start a relationship with grace but there because he co- gets to know her from her social media her social media yeah. which ironically is also how angus gets to know her angus oh, sees her at a, a, at a wedding is really enchanted with her and then stalks her social media so mm-hmm. i think he says like you know within an afternoon he knows every single thing about her where to find her how to contact her and they meet for a drink so Owen's always making these like slightly seedy comments about her breasts, which keep <laughs> popping up right throughout the book. And we know he's meant to be a bit of a sleaze, but there's another part of me that feels like she's just kind of Steve Toltz's, I don't know, like <laughs> a, a woman right. he loves, but also a woman he uses as the mouthpiece for some of his ideas. And I just found that a bit frustrating. Right. She never really felt like a real character to me, but uh-huh. in the same way that like... For me, none of the characters in this book ever felt like real people. They felt like mouthpieces for Steve Tox. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I did find it very frustrating that at one point she... Well, we should say that Owen is responsible for killing yes. Angus because he basically just wants to get rid of him so that he can, like you say, move in on Gracie. That's right. And he succeeds in that. And initially, Gracie's not attracted to him at all. No. But then she kind of just decides, oh, well, he's there and I'm alone, so I might as well, kind yeah. of, would you say? It's a really strange, because it's kind of implied that before being with Angus, Gracie had been single for a long stretch. Mm. So it's not like she was someone who went from relationship to relationship. And it's implied that she's pregnant and she's scared and there is this pandemic kind of building Maybe there's an element of just love the one you're with. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was definitely how it was it quite seemed. unclear to me too. He just sort of hops into bed with her and then eventually she goes, I suppose so. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know why because I just found him no so idea. intolerable. No, we should also add that Owen is dying of a brain tumour. So he's incredibly ill. He's having all sorts of physical and mental health episodes. Mm. So it's not like he's able in that moment to put his bet forward he's also like a complete nihilist who's really excited about the coming pandemic because Mm. he's like what great fortune that my terminal case coincides with the end of the world how fantastic (laughs) for me right I just kind of think there's nothing attractive about this man whatsoever so when she hops into bed with him I'm a bit like okay then sure (laughs) why not you know I've always hated the saying, my bad, and mm. I just hate it that much more now because yeah. Owen says it all the time. He does. He really so does. So annoying. I think this is what I mean about the inconsistencies in the character. So we're introduced to him. He's really conniving. He's really nihilistic. And by the end of the novel, when we meet him again, he's described as being almost completely sociopathic. Like mm. what was fantastic about his illness in the end of the world is it allowed him to discover that his true nature was this kind of sociopath. 
But yet there's a time when he used to be a doctor and one of his former colleagues comes to visit him and says that because of this pandemic, lots of doctors are coming out of retirement to try and treat the ill and will you come and do this? And he arrives at the house in the expectation that Owen might say yes, Mm. you know, that he has this history of being a pretty good doctor and of treating patients. I guess the responses were mixed, we'd say. (laughs) Yes, that was weird. There's like a – this sort of disconnect between – so Owen had – he had been married and he had a child with his partner. The child died young and the novel kind of implies that from that point in, life became meaningless to him. But it never really explores that. Mm. It also sort of implies that when he finds out that he's ill, he just kind of gives up on life and is happy to see this and kind of revels in the suffering of others as well. So there are these kind of little dot points around him, Mm. but the novel never explores it in any meaningful way, which I found frustrating. Is he just a sociopath or is he someone whose suffering has led him in a particular direction that means that he can't empathise with other people anymore or... But the novel doesn't really care, I don't think. The novel is like, he's funny when he's a sociopath mm. and he's funny when he is telling his ex-colleague to go away and it's funny to have these reviews about the various things he got up to as a doctor. But in terms of building a consistent character, I thought the book never did that and that got really frustrating for right. me. What did you think of The Afterlife? I really hated The Afterlife. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was just so similar to... Earth. Yeah. (laughs) Except it just seemed even more dismal. So this pandemic is described as even worse than COVID or any other of the pandemics in the past. And so they're anticipating a huge influx of people into this afterlife. And where are they going to house them all? There's a housing crisis in the afterlife. That part was where it really dragged for me. Once Angus died... And he didn't go to the... The orientation. The orientation, that's right. He missed the orientation. So there were heaps of things that he didn't learn and that he was bluffing his way through. And yeah, no, I found that really dragged. For me, the early section on the afterlife, I really enjoyed it. Really? (laughs) I thought it was like the best, the best part of the book is this early section on (sighs) the, the afterlife. So he dies and then he goes into the afterlife and... In this afterlife, there's no God. God doesn't seem to be around. There's just it, bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. It's called Legaria. It's in the middle of some kind of a civil war. He's not quite sure. He missed orientation, <laughs> so and he's chronically incurious. There's a joke in here about how angry he gets when people keep trying to explain things to him <laughs> and that the right to remain ignorant is like an under-respected or undervalued human right. So there's a constant jokes about how actually incurious he is about everything. I wrote that so, down too. That I, I really thought it was funny how Owen described him as having a congenital incuriosity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I found that hilarious. He has no idea. But what I did think was really interesting, so on the one hand I think it has this dark overtone so in the absence of any god that will provide a structure for the afterlife human beings in some ways are free to structure it however they like Mm. and what they do is create a place that's (laughs) even more dismal and violent and depressing as earth but what i thought he did do in there is i thought he actually gave a really good description of what it can feel like to be powerless in the face of a bureaucracy it Mm. reminded me of like a time in my 20s when I was trying to get onto Centrelink and it was impossible. He needs to figure out a way to get money and they have these cards that you preload money on but you have to get to the orientation to do that and the orientation is booked out (laughs) and you need to find somewhere 
to live. They've got like a public housing system, but of course it's like completely underfunded. So he's in essentially like a halfway house for men, which is really grim. And it's that sense of a bureaucracy where there are incredible rules that are really inflexible, but there's no one around to explain them to you. They don't have enough staff to run more orientation sessions, but they've got enough staff to make sure there's like quality control bureaucrats that come and interview you to ask you, so what was your inductor like? And they, you know, you have to give them a score out of like 5,000 or something like that, something ridiculous. So I thought that was actually, you know, given Angus comes from a background that's lower working class, he has this experience of he has to go to an employment agency and they're asking, well, what did you do before? And he desperately doesn't want to tell them because he doesn't want to live the same life over again. He doesn't want to be the same person anymore. And he feels like there's no way out. So they set him to work in this umbrella factory where he's not even making all of the umbrella. He's <laughs> making one of the tiny components that goes in the umbrella. He's talking to some of the other people in this factory and they say, we failed at life and now we're failing at the mm. afterlife. And he talks about feeling ashamed that they're in this situation. And I thought that this was one of the few times in the book where some of the madcap zany jokes kind of relax. And there is this portrait of what it feels like to be powerless in life. You've got no say in where you live. You don't know how you're going to get any money. There's this bureaucracy that's meant to help you, but you can't get it to help you. This job is completely soulless. But the other thing about the kind of job is that for the last hour, you have to do some induction thing where you do psychological testing for like an hour, which (laughs) asks you all these incredibly invasive questions, which can feel like some workplaces in America where you feel like your whole being, even right down to like your tiniest of memories, has to be given over to Mm. your employer in this way that makes you feel like you have nothing that's just yours, that you're powerless and have to give just whatever people want. So I thought that section was actually really good. It's so depressing, it's though. It's so depressing. And I think that's one of the things that started to really frustrate me with this book is that the disconnect between this zany, zany, zany dialogue and just how increasingly grim the novel was getting. And the problem then with having a character who's not curious is that he has no agency. He's not in this world. We know that the pandemic is causing even more people to kind of filter through to the afterlife than usual and they're having trouble housing them so there's this debate about whether or not you know that people can die in the afterlife and they go somewhere else but no one's quite sure where they go Mm. the idea is these new immigrants they're called should be killed and sent off to whatever the other section of the afterlife is Mm. and then there's a division of people saying no that's really inhumane we can't do that and so all of this is happening in the background, but Angus Mooney, true to form, doesn't care about any of it. <laughs> so it feels like there's no tension in the book. Oh, like, I see. Well, this stuff is happening, but Angus doesn't care about it, and the book's not really about any of that. It's just sort of saying that, well, of course this horrible stuff is happening because human beings mm. are just kind of flawed and imperfect, and we do horrible things. And there's not even any tension in that either. It's not <laughs> like there's a different view of human nature that's competing with it. It's just like, no, humans are terrible <laughs> most of the time. And terrible things happen and that's just about it. And then there's no break from it. And there's no break. It's (laughs) relentless and it gets worse. Yes. Were you waiting for Owen to show up in the afterlife? I couldn't have cared less. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) So I found that while I enjoyed that first section, I enjoyed the meeting of Gracie, the early introduction of the afterlife. I just really felt like the lack of tension in the book, the lack of it taking anything seriously at first made me really irritated and then it just made me really bored. Right. So, But yeah. okay, what about when, because Gracie's pregnant and there's yes. this pandemic and then Gracie tries to go to the hospital because she's going into labor. She needs help to have her baby and 
Owen doesn't have a mobile phone. And so she rings the house and says, meet me at the hospital. And then she goes to the hospital. And then the hospital, because of the pandemic, isn't letting anyone in. And she's like, you have to let me in. I'm having this baby. And he said, basically, what they're telling people is go home and Google it. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, great. Thanks for that. So she goes home and has the realization that Owen is, of course, not there because she told him to meet her at the hospital. So he's out there somewhere. She's having this baby. She realizes something's wrong and that the baby is breech. Yes. And so because she is the social media person that she is, she goes live on, is it on Instagram or Twitter or both? I think both? it's Instagram. Yeah. yeah. And she <laughs> puts the laptop between her legs and is like, look, what's <laughs> happening here? Help me. That was maybe the most interesting part of the book for me. The whole thing about her realizing that she needs to perform her own cesarean section on herself and she's got people googling and looking things up and telling her what to do and so she's somehow able to cut herself open and she passes out and when she wakes up Owen's there and he's helping her with the baby and he's stitching her up but she succeeds in performing her own c-section so that and then what to do when she realizes that she has contracted the good boy virus or the canine is that what it's virus. Called? Oh, the yeah. canine virus. That's right. Yeah. So that she's going to die. And what is she going to do with her baby? And because the military have been trying to clear everybody out because of the pandemic, but she and Owen decided to stick around. And so she goes out and there aren't very many people left alive, but she's trying to find somebody to leave her baby with. Mm. And she manages to find this couple who agree to take her baby. And she leaves the baby there. And then suddenly she decides, no, I can't do it. She turns around and goes back and gets the baby again. This was when I cared again Mm. (laughs) about what was happening in the book. Yeah, the thing for me, the only part of the book I really cared about towards the end was what would happen to Gracie and Inez. Yes, Um, that's the baby. So Inez is the name of the baby. So she's about maybe four or five months old during the middle of this pandemic so the bit about the birth scene mm. I will I just found so frustrating I was a bit like I don't believe this for a second right. I don't yeah, believe you this imagine. happened for a second this is this is kind of nuts I think it felt like another example of Gracie just being this inconsistent character like here she's this warrior woman who cuts a baby out of herself and and it's also I, because you're much more savvy with social media than than I so maybe it's more we could talk about what he seems to think about social media or the way he talks about social media in the book but so the birth scene I sort of found a bit kind of over the top but then mm-hmm. I did like you I felt really compelled with what's going to happen to Gracie and Inez so mm-hmm. the um the army is going from neighborhood to neighborhood and trying to round up survivors and keep them in a safe place but Gracie wants to stay in her house precisely because she's being haunted by both Angus and Owen sometimes at the same time where they replicate their dynamic Angus and Owen being incredibly rude to each other <laughs> but just without language just these kind of like turning their backs to each other in these hauntings and yeah, Angus is what... really annoyed that Owen has managed to figure out a way to haunt better right so he appears in like higher definition than Angus and Angus is just furious about this and like, he's like how is this this is typical like, how is this guy he murdered me and now he's like he's all sharp and fancy yeah. looking and yeah because he went to the more expensive yeah which Angus didn't even know existed <laughs> Oh, no, he's just furious. Yeah. He goes up to his guy, who's the sort of equivalent of a drug dealer, essentially, because you have to pay money to to 
go project through yourself. to project yourself back in. And he's like, I thought you told me you were the only guy. <laughs> and it's like, well, <laughs> well, maybe I didn't. And that's a, a kind of another thing, I guess the novel's about people and things being unchanging because to be able to afford to do this haunting, Angus returns to petty crime. So while mm. there's this great civil war happening in Ligaria, the afterlife, he's not paying any attention to it because he's back to picking pockets mm, and running right. scams in order to afford to haunt Gracie, which is pretty similar to running scams to when he was a drug addict back on earth or something mm. like that. So it's about this unchanging, mm. I think, nature of people's experiences. So Gracie decides, I don't want to leave these two men who drive her mental, I think, but they're familiar or loved or, or something by her in some way. She yeah, can't and leave. And they're tied to the house where they died. The, yeah. yeah. So she feels that she has to stay there. So when she becomes infected, I don't know how many spoilers yeah. we want to give. Well, but we usually do all the spoilers. All right. So <laughs> she decides that she can't bear to leave Inez in this uncertain world. So she kills Inez first mm -hmm. and then she kills herself afterwards. And her hope, because she knows that the afterlife is real... Her hope is that they'll be reunited in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, when they get there, she finds out that no one actually knows what happens to babies. They're not in Ligaria and no one knows where they are. So Grace is completely traumatised by this. She's asking Angus, like, where do the babies go? But, of course, he knows nothing about anything, so he's <laughs> got no idea. She's off to the library trying to find out. She's in a complete frenzied state. She can't sleep. All she's thinking about is how to... Find Inez. And also she's traumatised by the fact that she murdered her own yes. completely healthy baby. Yeah, and she's really haunted by the idea that her baby could be somewhere mm. needing her and she can't find her. Mm. Which, it also reminds me a little bit of talking about this idea of recurrence. So it takes Angus and, and Grace many years to fall pregnant with Inez after IVF. So you can almost think of IVF as like a process of like searching in a way. Mm. Like you're spending years doing everything you can to your body, kind of searching for this child. If you can think of it in that way. Mm. So in the afterlife, it feels like another type of replication. Gracie's out there searching for her daughter, searching for where she's gotten to mm. in the afterlife. So Angus mm. and Gracie essentially decide that they need to die again so they can continue to explore the afterlife and try and find Inez. So they die in the afterlife the same way they died in life. Gracie commits suicide and Angus is killed by Owen. And because he, he couldn't bring himself to kill himself, so basically he gets Owen to do it. Yeah, mm. and Owen has this moment where he goes, maybe you and me are soulmates. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh. I'm, I was born to kill you over and over and over again. You were born to be killed by me over and over again. So it has another sense of recurrence. Right. Where they, their deaths in death are the same as their deaths in life mm. and that they're just replicating these patterns right throughout their lives. What did you think of Gracie's decision to murder Inez instead of leaving her with that couple? I didn't think it was completely clear why she went back to the couple and took her daughter back. I thought this was the realest part of the book, the mm. most painful part of the book, but yeah. like you, it felt a little bit underexplored. It felt like he needs to move the plot to this point, so he's going to get her to do that, but without right. really exploring why and how. But my understanding of it was that the world in the pandemic was so uncertain and the people that she'd be leaving Gracie with could do anything to her. Like mm -hmm. She had no idea what would happen to Gracie if she left her. She had no idea who these people were. There's also... Angus has had some not amazing experiences in foster care. So I think it's kind of an act of love that she knows the afterlife exists, mm. that she knows that people can be reunited in the afterlife. So she takes a punt on 
if I kill Inez and take her with me and we both go to the afterlife together, maybe we'll be able to stay together and mm. maybe then she'll be able to look after Inez. And I thought the, the gut-wrenching thing when they get to the afterlife and that's not true mm. was so painful. Yeah. And the book just kind of skims over it I felt like right. it kind of tells you that Gracie's traumatized but there's also a bit of here we are at the pub and this is happening over there and that's <laughs> happening over there and I'm like I don't care like <laughs> where's this traumatized woman here and that's all I was really interested in from that point but I don't know that was my read on it what did you what I don't you I think? just thought it was really strange I felt like she went through all of the what could happen if she left Inez she definitely didn't want to leave her with a man mm. she wanted to leave her with a couple and she found that couple and they seemed all right and there was a moment when they closed the door and then after they took Inez in mm. and then she didn't hear anything and for some reason in that moment when she didn't hear them behind the door, she decided to go back and grab her back again. I don't know. It yeah. all seemed very strange, but it's hard not to put yourself in that position as mm. a mother. Yeah, I found it really hard. Oh, wow. And think, what would you do? Yeah. Oh, wow. I was rereading it last night, just that sort of last section. Mm. I found it so painful mm. to read because you can sort of relate to the idea that like she has this unbearable decision to make like she knows that she's gonna die she can't just die in the house with Inez she needs to take Inez somewhere or do something Mm -hmm. and there's no good option like there's no good right thing to do so I thought in in the end maybe that closing the door and not hearing anything was the sort of finality of just this is the first time she's actually physically been apart from Mm. Inez and that kind of moment kicking in of like no I can't do this I can't so there is a sort of intimacy that she was born in that house Mm. the two of them just figuring out how to do it together she dies in the house with her mum but I think for me this was the point where the sheer grimness Mm -hmm. of the book and that decision that Gracie makes is so heavy and so painful but there's just this zaniness over the top of it in the dialogue (laughs) that I also found really difficult to Mm. like I just found it really irritating. There's a kind of minor character in the book called Valeria who becomes Angus's partner in the afterlife. And she's a woman who died as a result of a gang rape. There's again a lack of seriousness in how he talks about her that I found really irritating as well. Mm. She's been through this really horrific experience that's a very gendered one as well. Mm. And he uses that as a way to talk about in the afterlife the similarity. So she's part of a counselling group for trauma victims she goes to this 24-hour church trying to find some kind of solace or way of accepting being in the afterlife but it really felt like these things are told in a slightly unsympathetic way she's presented as being a bit desperate a bit ridiculous a bit desperate to be part of angus's life Mm. she's mocked as well for being like an influencer and it felt really unkind i thought like it felt really unkind to give her this brutal death and then mock the way she tries to cope with it i think steve toltz is also mocking the idea that there are any certainty so her Mm. search for certainty or support it sort of feels like he's i don't know maybe i'm being a bit overly sensitive but i thought it just seemed really unkind Mm. in the same way that the lack of taking gracie's situation particularly seriously felt kind of a bit glib as well yeah you know there's a bit at the end where Hitler is invoked and there are swastikas being hung up around Ligeria. But he doesn't really care about that either. (laughs) It's not like there's any real engagement with the politics of that either. So it felt in the end that this madcap, zany joking over the top of these really heavy topics Mm. felt really insensitive. Right. And just really anti-humanist or something. Maybe that's a really big word, but... 
it just felt really unkind and really unnecessary. And I sort of thought, like, just just knock it off for a bit. Like, <laughs> it's like being with someone at the pub who won't stop talking. Like, you're like, stop for a minute. We know you're really funny. We're like 400 pages in. We know you're a very witty guy, Steve Talks. <laughs> you can cool your jets for 10 minutes because there's some dead babies. Like, yeah. <laughs> just knock it off. For a book that's supposed to be humorous, it does have a lot of really heavy grim topics yeah. did you laugh in this book not towards the end no mm. I laughed a bit out loud for the first half when mm. I found it was all very zany and light and people falling in love and a bit mm. of star-crossed lover action fine great I had some <laughs> chuckles then there's Hitler and babies and extermination camps and global pandemics and there's this man in the middle who won't stop making jokes about it all and I just thought oh smack off Steve like <laughs> How does this compare so, to A Fraction of the Whole? Because I got I thought, the impression that you liked that book. I did like And I'm really the getting whole. the impression you hated this. Have you picked up? I, wasn't <laughs> a, I, I felt like I started off quite diplomatically. I did like A Fraction of the Whole. It's a good few years since I read it. I reckon it would be about more than 10 years. And mm. I wonder if I would like it now as much as I did then, now mm. that I'm older. It's a lot shaggier. So I think what's good about this one, if you like his writing, is it's a lot tighter the plot's a lot tighter. It moves really quickly. The chapters are short. Mm. Every chapter is like introducing some new plot point. Yeah, I really liked it at the time. The humour is exactly the same. Right. It's exactly the same, but I feel like this is much, much darker. Mm-hmm. This feels like being sat next to somebody who's really depressed and nihilistic and not super keen on people <laughs> and they just won't be quiet. <laughs> How about you? Do you feel ultimately that you liked the book? I found the dialogue really realistic and sharp and witty. I really struggled in the middle of it and I didn't like the afterlife. But then all that stuff that happened with Gracie, it was really heavy Mm. and depressing, but also compelling. Like I wanted to know what was going to happen. Mm. A question for you. Yes. Okay. So Steve Toltz has said that this book is about the fear of the opinion of others. Right. I was wondering if you agree or what you thought about about that statement. Or? I didn't get that much at all. I know it says that at the back too, what Angus is in the grip of is the same fear as when he was alive, the opinions of others. Mm. I, I, I didn't get that at all, really. No. Okay. It wasn't just me then. Okay. I kept reading it going, huh? <laughs> <laughs> There is, it's one of the other things that feels a bit unsettled in the book. There are these like repeated digs at social media. Mm. I think he's really angry at Twitter. I think that's that's one of my main takeaways from this book. I didn't really get that either. No, I I don't really remember much discussion around him being preoccupied with what people thought of him really at all. Yeah. And Gracie wasn't worried about that too much. I thought she was the one because she has a big social media following. Mm. So I think... She has this moment when she's grief-stricken, when she goes online and she gets herself in a Twitter beef. Someone tells her online, I've got the quote here, Amy posted, check your privilege. Gracie responded, I checked it about three days ago and again this morning. It's simply not practical to check my privilege and confirm to you that I checked it as a preface to each and every sentence that I write. This gets her in trouble online, understandably, so she Mm. posts again. Why do we give credence to lived experience? How can anyone know enough about every individual's psychological state to confirm how much of their inner subjective experience corresponds with objective reality? Maybe it's 70%, maybe it's 80%, maybe it's 30%. Let it be said once and for all, lived experience as an evidentiary standard is mostly garbage. So she loses all of her initial followers. She gains thousands more followers than she 
uses those followers to help her give birth. Mm. So it's a kind of really weird episode in the book. The episode Mm. is mostly not about social media, but he has these really strange scenes kind of shoehorned in there that allow him to have a dig at social media. He often talks about seeing the best minds of his generation hooked on the dopamine, adrenaline of Facebook or something like that. (laughs) I don't know. He sounds like like man yells at clowns a bit for me. (laughs) But, yeah, he just introduces a bit of light trolling. Right. And then moves back to the actual bulk of the story. Mm. And I was sort of wondering... Maybe those are just things that have happened to Steve Tolstead. He's just wanted to stick in there. If that's what he means by the opinion of others Mm. or... You got a bad Twitter review once? I don't know. But they just sort of stuck out to me as feeling like odd moments and then it drifts back into being a depressing caper about the afterlife. Mm, now that you've said that thing about how everybody's just Steve Tolts, that's yeah. all I can think of. Exactly. I was thinking to myself when Gracie's going on about lived experience, I was like, it doesn't seem surprising to me that Steve Tolts, who seemingly takes no interest in people who aren't Steve Tolts, <laughs> is uninterested in other people's lived experience. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, sure, okay. (laughs) It just felt like an excuse for Steve Tots to talk about something that annoys him. And then it goes, Mm. and back to the novel. Right. Yeah, it feels like there's a few awkward moments like that that kind of clang for me. I think in the end, I just felt like this is a book that wasn't meant for me. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Mm. Yeah, we've had a bit of a look online and... As far as I can tell, most reviews of it have been really positive. Yeah. This is a book that lots of people find really funny. And one of the reasons why I wanted to read it was because Annabelle Crabb on the Chat 10 Looks 3 podcast, which I love, raved about it. But this is, I think, the second time when she's raved about a book. Fleischman... Do you know about that book? Flashman Strikes Again? Yeah. Yeah. I've not read it and I don't know anything about it. Yeah, she highly recommended that too. I think she said that one was a funny one as well and I really didn't like it. So I'm getting the opinion that Annabelle... Crab and I have different tastes of different books. I should say as well, I think like you, I've just decided that it's not for me and mm. I probably won't read the next Steve Toltz. But I do think if you've read A Fraction of the Whole or Quicksand or even an interview, he's always sort of in character in his interviews oh, as well yeah. and find him funny, you might really like this. I mean, I've said some things about <laughs> Steve Toltz, but... <laughs> I don't underestimate how hard it is to sustain being funny for four or 500 pages. There's multiple jokes. There's puns, there's Z mm. dialogue, there's these long lists where he kind of riffs on an idea and all of the kind of absurd endpoints it could take you to. Mm. There are dodgy, you know, Google reviews that he writes. <laughs> there's all sorts of different types of jokes and joke telling in the book. There's like drunks at the pub type, type yeah. humour. There's a whole bunch of different types of humour and different ways of being funny. And I think that, like, that's really hard to sustain for a really long period of time. It didn't work for me and I think Mm. you have to review the book in front of you, not the one you wished it had been. (laughs) And there are things in there that I wished it had done differently Mm. that I would have liked more. But I think for people who've enjoyed his books in the past, it's still as funny as any of his other ones before. It's still got that really distinctive sense of humour, but it's tighter, it's better told and it's better structured and it's better plotted. So I think that's lost the kind of shagginess of some of his earlier writing okay. and become kind of sleeker. So I think if you've enjoyed his writing in the past, I think you probably really will like this. And so you should check it out and just see what you think. Mm, I we, do like the short, sharp chapters. Yeah. I do like that. Yeah. And the audiobook is read really well. And it's interesting how the person who narrated it chose to 
do different accents for some oh, of the different characters because it didn't say so in the book. Yeah. But of course there would be people from all different parts of the world in the afterlife and yes. so different people had different accents and I enjoyed that. Oh cool. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. That mm. might way that might break up the Steve Tolts of it as well. Maybe, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why yeah. I didn't hate it as much as you. <laughs> no, I should say that like all the scenes that have Angus and Owen going at each other fantastic right. right they're really really good these two men hate each other but they're kind of witty repartee they're really well matched because they're stick <laughs> <laughs> but yeah right? i think there's a lot to enjoy in those scenes as well yeah in spite of what i said about it being grim i think the end note of grace and angus working together to try and track down inez mm. and this idea that this is their mission the book has lots of parents that leave their children and don't come back so that happens to Angus as well. Mm. And they fail their children in life and in the afterlife. And there's something I do think in the fairly grim world that Steve Toltz paints, the idea of these parents who want to be prodigal parents, they mm. want to be the parents who come back, who find you, who are there for you. That's what they want to be. And particularly the Angus character who has had a terrible run on the parenting front. I do think there's something hopeful in that final image of them trying to find Inez and being committed to still be parents. So this is Angus. I said, I also believed that life was meaningless but not worthless and how that distinction had been enough to get me out of bed in the morning. So I think Mm. there is this sense here that like being with Gracie, being Inez's parents makes life meaningful and worthwhile for them and that that's in the face of all this chaos and violence and everything that's the thing that if you think of dying and coming back and dying and coming back Mm. and keep going as the like the getting out of bed of the afterlife looking for her will be the thing that keeps them going i think that's a sort of hopeful note to end on yeah did you read any other books this month i did i read a couple of good ones this month i read case study that we spoke about it was the book that has been shortlisted for the Booker, which is about the young woman who believes a radical psychiatrist is responsible for her sister's suicide. Oh, that's so right. So she decides to pose as a patient and get to the bottom of what's going on. And it's great. It's, oh. really, it's really, really funny. It's really smart. It has lots of post-war London and what it was like at the time and the breakdown of old ideas and old establishment ways of thinking and new people and the character of the sister. She invents this character, Rebecca, who goes to see the psychologist mm. and she's fantastic. So I definitely mm. recommend that one. And I also read Vladimir by... I'll look her up and we can pop it in the description. I'll put it in the show notes, yeah. Is that about Nabokov? No, it's about a woman. She's in her 50s. She's unnamed. She's an academic in upstate New York. And her husband, who's also an academic there, and the chair of the department has just been accused of sexual misconduct. So he's currently not working while they await for a hearing. I don't want to say too much, but I think this is a fantastic one for book clubs or to read with a friend. So she decides to stay with him and his affairs have been known to her for a long time time so it doesn't come out of the blue but she is seething as well at her husband so the book is kind of marketed as like a sexy big sexy book there's like a man with his shirt undone on the top on the front of it but really I think it's kind of about a a woman who's in her 50s who's made all sorts of accommodations for her husband for her child the Vladimir of the title is a young academic in the department who's just come on board he's an experimental novelist she really likes his work she becomes kind of infatuated by him and her infatuation inspires her 
to start rewriting in a way that she hasn't written for years. So Mm. he becomes this kind of male muse. So there's lots in the book about sexuality and about Me Too, which are great to kind of talk about in a group. But then there's, I think the heart of the book is really about this woman trying to understand her own desires Mm. and why she has ignored them for so long Mm. or what compromises she's made. Has she made them out of fear or she's just trying to understand herself better in the midst of this really heady moment of being turned on by this new academic in a way she hasn't been for years and coming to terms with her relationship to her husband. That sounds Um, really good. It's really, really good. Plus there's the young women on campus who have really admired her up until this point and her relationship with them and those relationships have been really meaningful to her. She takes really great pride in having been a great teacher. So there's all this really interesting stuff going on. It's short, it's about 200 pages. Okay. So it's all sort of about desire and appetites and mm. compromises. It's oh. one of those ones I finished and I was like, ah, I don't know anyone who's read it. <laughs> yeah, so it's a really good one. But how about you? Have you been I've reading read, much this month? Well, I'm still getting out of the book slump. And like I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, when you said that you read procedural crime when you're in that book slump, I thought, I wonder if I have a genre like that. And I realized it's time travel. Oh, cool. <laughs> so oh, that's way better than mine. That's I don't awesome. Know. I read This Time Tomorrow by Emma Straub. I think I'm saying that right. Have you heard of that? I've heard her name, but I don't know much about her. I don't know much about her either, but I just thought I'd read the little blurb about the book. On the eve of her 40th birthday, Alice's life isn't terrible. She likes her job, even if it isn't exactly the one she expected. She's happy with her apartment, her romantic status, her independence, and she adores her lifelong best friend. But her father is ailing, and it feels to her as if something is missing. When she wakes up the next morning, she finds herself back in 1996, reliving her 16th birthday but it isn't just her adolescent body that shocks her or seeing her high school crush it's her dad the vital charming 40 something version of her father with whom she is reunited now armed with a new perspective on her own life and his some past events take on new meaning is there anything that she would change if she could i have heard about have this you? it sounds lovely yeah how did you find it did oh, you enjoy it's it it's just really really pleasant it yeah. really leans into that trope And, oh, I realized when Jasmine and I were talking about book tropes when we did the novel Book Lovers, somebody said to me afterwards, what's a trope? So I thought, oh, we should define what we mean by a trope. So a trope in literary terms is a plot device or character attribute that is used so commonly in the genre that it's seen as commonplace or conventional. For example, a trope in superhero stories is a villain who wants to take over the world. So the reason why we were talking about tropes with the book lovers book is because it really leaned into the romance Mm. tropes and this really leans into the time travel tropes and like in book lovers where it mentions all of the famous romantic stories it also does that in this book so it talks about like 13 going on 30 and back to the future and how they handle time travel and how time travel is handled in this and I don't know it's just something so satisfying about a character that goes back to being 16 and how she handles things differently and the consequences of all of that. I remember reading the review and like meeting your dad when he was Mm -hmm. 16 as well sounds so charming I really loved that about 
the Back to the Future movies. Yeah, well, when he gets to see his parents when they're young. And yeah, so really this, nice. so she's sixteen. So her dad's in his forties. But oh, in in okay. yeah, when the novel starts, he's in the hospital and he's really unwell. Right. So I then, misunderstood. I thought her father was also a teenager when she no. goes back. Okay, yeah, that is like Back to the Future, but yes. no, that's not <laughs> in this book. So yeah, it's lots of fun, and it was very easy to slip back into reading with this book. It was just pure pleasure. I think sometimes like, you just get a book like that that breaks the seal. Yeah. And you're like, right, I'm back. That was exactly what it was like. Now, did you have some books to tell us about? I do. That we have some out? kind of new releases coming out at the moment. There's one I think you'll be really happy to hear about. Okay. It's the new Maggie O'Farrell that you ah. from Hamnet. So there's The Marriage Portrait. So this one is, or maybe you won't, you don't like historical fiction too much. Normally, no, not but usually, okay. But this is set at the heart of the treacherous political world of the Italian Renaissance. It's the masterful story of a young woman's battle for her very survival. So it's the story of Lucrezia di Medici. So she's sitting for her marriage portrait and she's pondering her new husband's nature. Is he a ruthless politician or a kind, sophisticated? And what will her future be like? Mm. So. That sounds really good. Another kind of blockbuster one is Stephen King has a new oh. book coming out on the 6th of September called Fairy Tale. The premise is 17-year-old Charlie is used to being on his own until he befriends Howard, an old recluse, and his beloved dog Raider, who live in a large house on the hill. After Howard dies, he leaves Charlie a note about a magical portal to a parallel world where good and evil are at war. Now it's up to Charlie and Raider to save both worlds. Mm. So have at it. There you go. Yeah, I haven't read Stephen King since I think 11, 22, 63, yeah, I think was the last Stephen King. I feel like King. it's been, and this sort of feels <clears throat> like it's maybe in the wheelhouse of some of his 80s and 90s books mm. with like child narrators and or child characters. So I think that could be a really good one. Mm. Yeah, the one coming for Elizabeth Strout. Have you ever read? Uh, I've never. No, uh, it's, I've yeah, she's so on, many good things. I know, yeah, because that's at Olive Kitteridge, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And so I know people who've read her stuff, she like automatically becomes one of their favourite writers. I don't yeah. think I've ever known anyone who's read something by her and not liked it. Mm. So she has a new one coming out on the 20th of September. It's called Lucy by the Sea. And this is the third book to feature her character, Lucy Barton. So in this one, when the pandemic hits, Lucy Barton leaves her life in New York City to live in isolation with her ex-husband in Maine. Alone and in isolation, Lucy and William must come to terms with their complex past to find hope for a brighter future. So I think Lucy Barton is the protagonist of the book My Name is Lucy Barton mm. and also O. William, right. who I'm presuming is about the ex-husband. So that sort of already sounds like an intriguing an ex-couple shacked up together in isolation. Sounds <laughs> promising. How do we feel about books about the pandemic though? Are we getting tired of it? Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think maybe having just lived through it, there's a kind of fatigue. Mm. And then so reading books about it, it just feels like you just kind of want to move on yeah, a bit. A um, bit, yeah. I mean, it's also something like it's not like it's in the past for all of us. You know, for example, in our workplace, our workplace is still impacted by COVID all the time. Yeah, yes. I think there's a bit of but, pandemic exhaustion. Yeah, <laughs> but I think maybe going back to the first in the series oh, yeah. might be nice mm. and then... I'm reading so slowly at the moment that by the time I get to the third book in the series, 
it'll probably be like 2030. So <laughs> be fine. It'll be fine by then. There was a couple of others for fans of Richard Osman's The Thursday Murder Club. I don't oh, know if you've yes. read any of these. No, I haven't. I read the first one. It's oh, did super, you? super charming. Oh, okay. Um, it's set in a retirement village. That's right. And it's a gang of amateur sleuths. The new one is coming out on September 20th. It's called The Bullet That Missed. Mm-hmm. So we get lots of inquiries about his books here at the mm-hmm. library. So I think there'll be lots of happy patrons. And the last one is a new book by Robert Drew. So I feel like it's been a little while since he put one out and this one sounds really him. good. So he wrote The Drowners, The Surfers. I think he's from Western Australia. Okay. It's been a little while, I think, since he's published one. And this is called Nimblefoot. It's about John Day, who was the child phenomenon from Australia in 1866. He was 10 years old and he was the undefeated juvenile world champion in apparently a 19th century spectator sport called pedestrianism which was a gruelling, long-distance, competitive walking. (laughs) (laughs) And then in 1870, at the age of 14, John Day won the Melbourne Cup riding on a horse called Nimblefoot. But when Robert Drew was intrigued by this, tried to find out a little bit more about what happened to John when he grew up, the records just kind of stop. I mean, for someone who was internationally known as well as this child phenomenon, it seemed really interesting that there was nothing more. Mm. So this is him imagining a possible biography for John Day. So that's some of what's coming up. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of things that are coming up, we have two author events that booked out Really, really quickly. So exciting. Yeah. Yes. So the one that's coming first is Emma Carey. She has a book called The Girl Who Fell From the Sky about her experience when she went skydiving in Europe and something happened with the parachute and she became a paraplegic because of that incident. And so we're really, really excited to have her coming to the library to talk about that. And as I say, it booked out really quickly. So we will be recording that and making that available on the podcast for you to listen to. And then also we have Jane Harper. So, so many fans. I love her books. Of Jane crime Harper. procedural yes. nuts. She's, she's so good. Erin Falk. Yeah, this is the last book that'll feature Erin Falk, I, I think. Uh, oh, no. I'm no, pretty really sure. Like, oh, no. <laughs> but it's set in South Australia. Yes, in wine country. Yes. I think it sounds really, really nice. Yeah, so it's perfect that she's coming. That also booked out really, really quickly. So we are recording that as well. And we will make that available on the podcast too. Yes, so please listen. I reckon they're going to be really fantastic talks. Yes. Especially Um, the Jane Harper one, which should be in conversation with Ali Clark. That's right. Now make sure you subscribe to the podcast and then you'll be notified as soon as those are uploaded. So in September, Jasmine will be back. And so we thought we would do another TikTok famous book. And how can we talk about TikTok books without discussing Colleen Hoover, who just (laughs) blew up on TikTok. And I was chatting with Andrea about whether you had to read Colleen Hoover books in order. And I found out that these ones are standalone. Uh So her latest one is Reminders of Him. And that is a standalone novel. So that is going to be our book for September. I'm so excited for this. Over the last little while, we've had so many Young women and teenagers coming to the library asking us for Colleen Hoover books. I was yes. putting some holes out this morning. There's like four Colleen Hoover books on the whole shelf. So I'm so excited to hear what you guys think. Fantastic. Yeah. Yes, I've never read any Colleen Hoover. Neither have I. My daughter's read like three or four of them, I think. Oh, so cool. yeah, yeah, I'm interested to see what all the fuss is about. But here's a little blurb about Reminders of Him. 
After serving five years in prison for a tragic mistake, Kenna Rowan returns to the town where it all went wrong, hoping to reunite with her four-year-old daughter. But the bridges Kenna burned are proving impossible to rebuild. Everyone in her daughter's life is determined to shut Kenna out, no matter how hard she works to prove herself. The only person who hasn't closed the door on her completely is Ledger Ward, a local bar owner and one of the few remaining links to Kenna's daughter. But if anyone were to discover how Ledger is slowly becoming an important part of Kenna's life, both would risk losing the trust of everyone important to them. The two form a connection despite the pressure surrounding them, but as their romance grows, so does the risk. Kenna must find a way to absolve the mistakes of her past in order to build a future out of hope and healing. Oh, it sounds good. Yeah. yeah. So join us here. There's lots of reasons to join us here over the next couple of months. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks, Paula. Take care. Thank you.